Hello and welcome to the 200th edition of Romaniacs. After three and a half years of drama, tension and cackles that nearly broke our microphones, we finally achieved more episodes than Seinfeld, not as many as Friends, and despite some unfortunate plot developments, we haven't jumped the shark yet. It's a very special edition this week with four of our regulars. I'll introduce them at top speed. Joining me this week as he did on Romaniacs number one, Collector's Edition, author of How to Be a Liberal, Ian Dunt. Hello, Ian. Hello. This makes me feel old. Has it been, <laughs> has it been three and a half years well spent? Fucking hell. What, have, we, have we spent three and a half years in a, in a room talking at each other? <laughs> I mean, yeah, but now we're in different rooms, so that's different. Yeah, yeah well, there's, no, there's changed three and a half years. Mm. Fucking hell. Okay, yeah, no, it's been fantastic. Thank you. This has been a wonderful use of our time. Good. We've achieved a great deal. Uh, there's no Brexit anymore. <laughs> Our special guest on Romaniacs number two, LSE COVID blog editor, Roz Taylor. Hi, Roz. Hello. We just snapped you up. You went from guest to panellist like that. I remember the first episode I was on. I didn't realise it was only number two that I'd asked on so early, but it was just like it was the first time that anybody had made me laugh about Brexit. And it was just, it was like a revelation. I've been thinking about Brexit for ages because I've been working on it basically since um, September 2015. And uh, all that time, it had been just misery upon misery. And then suddenly we're all sitting around having a great laugh about it. And I thought, wow, this is the way to go. And hot on her heels, Naomi Smith, I guess, on episode number three. Thanks to us. She's now chief executive of Best Britain. <laughs> 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 Hello, Naomi. It's, it's been a pleasure being your stepping stone. <laughs> <laughs> I was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I <laughs> And finally, the baby of the show, having made his debut as recently as episode 22, it's actor, cook and writer Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello. I remember it well. I remember it fondly. I thought, who the fuck are these people? <laughs> I I occasionally still think that. <laughs> but sadly, things went awry and you ended up on the panel. <laughs> this week, what awaits us in the post-Brexit, post-COVID world? We'll discuss our hopes and fears for the future at length. We'll also look back by picking out some of our favourite moments from the podcast so far. That's after a quick announcement from Alex. As long-term listeners know, we had to postpone our April Bunker vs. Romaniacs live show at the Leicester Square Theatre for reasons that are all too familiar. We had planned to do the show on Tuesday 22nd of September. Unfortunately, but not surprisingly, we've just learned the date won't be possible either and we'll have to postpone again. We understand that this is a big disappointment for everyone who's bought tickets. We're disappointed too. But to tide everyone over... We're opening our next Zoom live stream to all ticket holders for the live show, as well as Patreon backers. It will take place on Thursday, 24 September at 8pm, and we'll do our best to recreate the Leicester Square Theatre atmosphere for everyone. Ticket holders and Patreon backers will receive registration details this week, and we'll look forward to seeing you for a chat, comedy Zoom backgrounds, and of course, your questions. If you bought a ticket for the live show, we hope to announce a rescheduled date by early autumn. If you could hold back from asking for a refund, it would be a big help. Not to us. We don't receive any proceeds until after the show has taken place. But to our friends at the Leicester Square Theatre, who are doing their best to deal with the most serious threat to the theatre world in a century. Your support and understanding is invaluable to them. Let's do what we can to help. So put Thursday, 24th September in your diary. And if you're not a Patreon supporter yet, sign up and we'll see you then. Thanks, Alex. Before we get to the glorious future, a quick look at a new story that involves the Brexiters playing some of their classic old hits. <laughs> As dozens of migrants were intercepted during attempts to cross the channel, Priti Patel has requested that the Ministry of Defence send naval warships to block the passage, a plan that the source inside the Ministry itself allegedly said had more holes than a slice of Swiss cheese. And in a tribute to the late Marquis Smith, she also appointed a clandestine channel threat commander. <laughs> Rob, over, I, won't, I won't do the whole thing in that voice. Uh, <laughs> oh, please do. I mean, I really think you should. 
over 4,000 migrants. <laughs> <laughs> Ros, over 4,000 migrants have made the crossing this year already. Um, why the timing? Why is Pretty Patel doing this now? Well, it's partly a visibility thing. People are more often, more likely to be on beaches, looking at beaches at this time of year. It's also, in case you've noticed, August. And in August, we have a chance to think about stories that we don't normally pay much attention to because there's no parliament sitting and all the rest of it. But ultimately, it's about Nigel Farage and Nigel Farage's quest to uh, achieve something um, other than the exceptionally hard Brexit, which he has always desired. And now that he can't, you know, being leader of the Brexit party is now a pretty meaningless position, um, he has the chance to try and play, place, place pressure on the government. And he's been really subtweeting, you know, uh, Pretty Patel in a fairly aggressive way, I will say, in recent days. And then, of course, you've got to bear in mind that Pretty Patel herself uh, is taking advantage of the quasi-absence of her boss. I don't know about you, but I can't remember the last time Boris Johnson put his head above the parapet. Um, and um, to stand up for the values she believes in while he's out of out of uh, England and holidaying in Scotland. I completely agree with you, Roz. I would also say there's another reason for it. Um, and I think it's it's to provide distraction. Uh, let's not forget, this government has shoveled billions of our pounds uh, to their rich mates for masks that don't exist, for a fucking app that doesn't work, ferry companies with no ferries, a track and trace system that neither tracks nor traces, worst death rates in Europe, being sold a Japan trade deal only worth 0.0% of GDP and, uh, you know, some trophy of global Britain. And the man pulling all the strings in number 10 uh, is repeatedly gaslighting us. And I'm talking about Cummings, not Johnson, by the way. They're robbing us blind. And so to distract from all of that, you know, in the hope that none of us actually notice how fucking abhorrent this government is, the news has pictures of 20 desperate people in a dinghy. I just think that, you know, they're, they're whipping it up to distract as well. Don't forget the worst recession, which is just... Indeed. News arrived. I, I find 197 episodes have mellowed Naomi nicely. She's <laughs> <laughs> like Manyana. the heat. I'm very angry today. <laughs> yeah. She's the Hakuna Matata of the uh, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Alex, Keir Starmer, as far as I know, has not commented personally yet on the government's plans, but Shadow Immigration Minister Holly Lynch uh, has. And seems to have focused on uh, the government's incompetence, of which there's always plenty to go around, rather than the morality of it. Um, is this, I mean, this this is obviously uh, attracted criticism. Is, are we getting more moral leadership from uh, delicious ice cream vendors, Ben and Jerry, uh, than we are from the Labour Party? Um, I, I don't know. Is it, I mean, our general immigration policy and attitude, I'm sure Labour will have a position on it in good time. Um, in terms of feeding the, the news frenzy around uh, uh, immigration at the moment, you know, sort of people crossing the channel, I, I think it might be a valid uh, attitude to say don't feed it. Um, you know, Farage, by going down to the channel every sort of day with his video camera for the last few months, um, he, he's created a sense of panic, but he's also done something else. He's advertised it. You know, it's not a coincidence that we're getting a really high number of people crossing right now. Part of that is that there are people, uh, you know, at the crossing points uh, all day long on, on news at the moment, going, loads of people are doing it, it's really easy, but the rules will have to be tightened up very soon. I mean, that that is literally creating a peak of people that are going, shit, we need to go now. So if you were planning to make the crossing over to Britain, you know, this would make it imperative that you did it now. And in turn, that peak in number feeds their uh, sort of alarmist narrative. So it becomes a, a sort of self-sustaining, ever-growing snowball. Well, this is the equivalent of saying, well, we're closing the pubs on Monday, so... Have well, exactly. No, but yeah. that's exactly it. Ian, you've said before that you thought that at the time the death of Alan Kurdi would change opinions on immigration, but in the long run you were proved wrong. 
Jack Straw, as I said, it will only take one of these dinghies to capsize for opinions to shift, even in the Tory party. Um, do you think a tragedy like that would would change minds? And for, you know, and, and maybe only in the short term. Yeah, well, that's the problem, right? Like it does. It usually has two weeks effect, three weeks effect, and then things reset back to normal. And at the time, I mean, during the Curdy thing, um, Victor Orban at the time seemed like an anomaly, right? Like, I mean, just days afterwards, he was doing a speech going, look, this is an invasion. We're being invaded. We've got to stand up. Everyone's gone mad talking about how much they care about children. And at the time, he seemed like this monstrous kind of Disney villain. And then the whole of the continent essentially just pivoted to his point of view, you know, including, you know, countries like Germany, you know, which might have had a very good policy about people coming in. But behind uh, closed doors was doing deals with Erdogan, was doing deals with the Libyans, which was essentially trapping people in camps um, uh, where they were tortured and they were killed. So, I mean, there's no... It doesn't feel to me like the compassionate response lasts for long enough. But also what you want to do is you want to stop getting to that point in the first place. The thing is that the boats are noticeable. Like we've had this flow for a really long time. We have a sort of semi-regular, pretty moderate flow of people trying to come here. And they come for a bunch of different reasons. Something's because they just think, I mean, and in a lot of cases, when you see the reports of people that do the interviews with, with guys in camps, like in Calais, the old jungle and stuff, they just think Britain is a place of opportunity. Like they actually believe the stuff that they've seen on TV and that people have told them. They actually believe in the country. In other cases, like Naomi was saying, it's because they know someone here. I mean, you've got to think, right, when you've been through a war, your whole life is shattered. Like very often, there is just like one or two people in the world that you even know anymore, or at least that you know where they are. If you happen to know that one of them is in Bristol, your thing is to get to Bristol. That's your only chance of rebuilding a life that isn't just about work. You know, it's not just about, it's about, being with people that you actually know, possibly the last person on earth that you actually know at this stage. So they're going to try and come. We, we've had that flow. It's a regular flow. They predominantly use lorries coming over from the channel. The reason that stopped is because of COVID. So all of these numbers would have been there anyway. It's just that some of it has shipped towards boats. It's partly also the weather conditions. That's the only thing that's changed. And all we're really ending up discussing is the fact that Farage has managed to turn that into a culture war that infects the mainstream. You know, he was gibbering on about this shit for fucking months before Priti Patel decided to adopt it. That's all that's changed is not the situation, the objective situation, really. What's changed is the fact that he once again got it into the mainstream. Back in episode 100, we discussed the independent group's fateful trip to Nando's, a place Ian called criminally overrated, thus ruining our chances of getting a Romaniac's black card. This was back in early 2019 when we thought Brexit could be only 29 days away. Amendments were rattling through the Commons. With the arrival of COVID-19, the future is now even more unpredictable, but we're giving it a go anyway. Our regulars have each picked something they think will be a big issue in the years to come. Uh, Ros, we'll start with you. You've picked the future of public protests. I think when a lot of us look back at 2020 and we try to think of a news story that didn't involve COVID-19, um, there's going to be one thing that uh, springs to mind, and that's the statue of Edward Colston toppling into the Avon in Bristol. Um, It was really effective and it got Black Lives Matter talked about in the mainstream without violence, unless you count violence against statues, which I don't consider violence, with a relatively small number of people involved. And then we look back at the huge marches against Brexit over the past four years, uh, at least a million people in London, smaller marches in other cities, also peaceful protests. And you've got to ask yourself, and it's a really hard question to ask, because I think all of us went on those marches and Naomi actually helped organise them. Why did we achieve so little from those marches? Um, we were clear about what we wanted uh, to stop Brexit or a second referendum, but we didn't change minds. And if you look back, the anti-Iraq war protests and the, anti, uh, the pro-fox hunting marches also had clear aims and also failed. And what does that tell us? It tells us, I think, that su- successful protests aren't usually about asking for something politely. They need to shock the casual observer out of their assumptions. And that was what we failed to do. Maybe it was always going to be difficult with Brexit, but we didn't shock people into starting a conversation. We didn't go for the symbolic. A lot of us went out on a slow walk and we felt a bit less alone and we reinforced our own identity, which is not a small matter, but didn't achieve what we wanted. So as we move into a period of very high unemployment, 
that will hurt the youngest most, even as house prices go up again. And we tell kids we're going to rate and grade them without them even having been able to take the exams that we told them were so important. And a younger generation is emerging that's going to be even more painfully aware than ever how much they've been screwed over by older people. They'll need to ask themselves, what is going to get those older people's attention? And I think that will be the moment at which power starts to move from an elderly demographic, which currently runs our politics, to a younger one. And do you think that there will be particular issues that will become sort of flashpoints for the protests? Or is it, is it going to be, do you think it's mainly going to be um, the sort of anti-government unrest, uh, you know, related to the recession? Or do you think there's going to be kind of quite a lot of competing ones? And that might be Black Lives Matter still, that might be climate, you know, that there'll actually be quite a lot of different specific protests. I think they'll have a common thread, which will be younger people feeling that their futures have been taken away with them, from them, whether that's because of climate change or whether it's because of unemployment or any of the other things that we're inflicting upon younger generation, lack of housing, that kind of thing. It, that will be the common thread that runs through them. Alex Andrea, you've picked the notion of smart cities. Uh, please ex- explain them. Um, basically, there's a lot of this already happening in in a small scale uh you know we we tell our home to turn the heating on or you use uh, an app to tell you uh whether you've missed the bus and you now need to walk to the train station because that's your fastest route home we use an app to uh, order a, a, a car to take us from a to b or make a restaurant reservation um and as that develops and uh, uh, wireless internet becomes faster and more prevalent in urban um, centers and uh, uh, receptors basically become more sophisticated in, um, in things around us, um, it will become more and more the case that we're living in an urban environment that you can be informed about in real time, and that in a way uh, molds itself around you. I don't think we're very far from advertising um, being sort of targeted specifically at the people who are walking past that billboard at any particular moment. Uh, And when you combine that with with the advances in neuroscience, you know, where you're already getting the early stages of cortical to computer interfaces. You know, you already have paraplegics who can move in an exoskeleton just by thinking about moving. And you have uh, interfaces that allow people with sight impairments a sort of vision, people with hearing impairments a sort of hearing. And so I think we're very close to a time. I would say we're maybe 20 years away from a time when um, the city around you, in a way, reads your wishes and can adapt to what you want to do. And 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 where where do we see signs of this nightmarish dystopia at the moment? I don't think it is a nightmarish dystopia. You know, I I, I know I know it's it's easy for an Orwellian like you to reach for that, but <laughs> um, but look, actually, we are all already hooked into our devices. We are all constantly on our phones, uh, searching for things, ordering things, looking for routes, looking for reservations. This will simply um, free our hands and allows us, allow us to raise our eye line. So I, I think it's actually a, uh, it, it's a step forward from where we are at the moment, where we are really insular and closed into our mobile device. And when people talk about smart cities, they're usually thinking of more sort of affluent places like, you know, London or Toronto, San Francisco. Um, we've been talking about, you know, towns, um, former industrial towns, you know, being most at risk and really where a lot of the kind of, um, you know, this is where a lot of the sort of negative political developments are being driven by these places being left behind. Do you think that they're, you know, when the, the, what's that famous quote? It's, you know, the future's already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Um, is there a danger that you will just have 
these kind of smart super cities and then the kind of um, neglected towns where adverts don't address you personally. There's a danger. It's not a danger. It's an almost a certainty <laughs> that this will happen. I mean, you see it. You know, everyone refers to London as the an, the affluent bit of the country, but you see it within London. You see it within my neighbourhood. You know, I can walk a few blocks down and tell you exactly up to which street uh, sort of gentrification has reached. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's sort of creeping from corner to corner. Um, and then you walk five minutes the other way and suddenly you're in a bit where the police refused to go on call out. Um, so, yes, but again, that's a more general point about addressing inequality and addressing the unevenness of, of uh, you know, where and how we spend money as a, as a society. It's not, it's not a, an argument for stopping technological progress from happening because actually even if it is at a at a lesser uh, to a lesser extent it is helpful to everyone it is when i go to a small town where i've never been before where i am most reliant on my mobile device for you know how do i get to my airbnb uh where do i eat you know when i'm touring it's actually in those places where i find the the uh, being able to get live information on a place um, most useful. Ian Dunt. Dorian Linsky. The thing you think we should keep an eye on in the next few years is institutional resistance to nationalism. Please expand. Yes, indeed, indeed. It sounds very exciting, doesn't it? Um, okay, so look, I mean, you look to the, to the last few years and what we've really been seeing is... Um, the sort of basic structure of um, a liberal democratic society start to shake under the force of governments that basically want to take on all power. Now, this goes like way back. The idea that you split power, that you separate it out, that you put it in different positions in order to try to restrain the most powerful people, and the most powerful people is typically the government. And we do this, I mean, we do it in a variety of ways, right? We usually do it by cutting up the legislature in a bicameral sort of parliament, we do it by um, the courts. We do it by journalism. We even do it by NGOs um, and international organizations. And if you look across the scale, wherever you look, if you look at Viktor Orban, if you look at Salvini in Italy, um, if you look in Poland, at Trump, at Brexit, in every case, every single fucking case, they attack the institutions. They attack the domestic institutions, the courts, the journalists, and they attack the international ones, the EU, the WTO, the appellate court, the WTO is now basically has ceased to function because of Trump's attacks. You see the same thing with Salvini attacking the EU, the same thing with Orban attacking the EU. That's not just a British thing. And in different countries, you get different levels of resistance, of institutional resistance. So in Hungary, Orban pretty much just managed to wipe them away. He created a sort of shadow state. He managed to purge most of the judiciary. Uh, managed to purge most of independent journalism, created these absurdly titles, government NGOs. In other words, government, non-government organization, because he's a very literate fucker. Um, and managed to, in that way, just sort of overshadow the entire NGO structure. Now, what's interesting to me is that in Britain and in America, they've managed to hold firm a little better. I mean, they probably have much longer heritage. They have a bit more resilience. Now, we obviously saw that, you know, in the Article 50 court case. We saw it again in the Supreme Court case, um, which in itself was about the prorogation of Parliament, another one of the institutions. And they held firm. In the US, similar things. When, it, when Trump went after, when he went after people um, who'd escaped from natural disasters uh, and had a right to stay in the US for that reason, I mean, that was a planned deportation of 800,000 people. That was a plan that was going to be one of the largest deportation projects in American history that was stopped by the courts when it came to the dreamers the sort of young children predominantly from Mexico and parts of Latin America who went over to the US when they were very very young brought over by their parents and are now much older again that was stopped by the courts when it came to family separation again that was stopped by the courts the courts held firm and the thing to look out for to me when you look across these different countries I mean you look at Poland in the future where it's unlikely that they'll be able to stand firm in the same way one of the main factors you're looking at 
is can the institutions hold firm against this assault? They're hard to, it's hard to feel like this is this great moment of rebellion, right? Because, you know, they're stuffy, it's an institution, but ultimately they remain one of the most radical propositions in political theory, the separation of powers, and the extent to which that survive will be absolutely crucial in the next few years. So in America and in Britain, even though they have hard right governments, uh, we have a hard right government, um, we still hear claims that the left controls every institution, which obviously sounds great to me. Um, but I mean, how much truth is there in, in, I don't know, trying to assign a certain political position to institutions, for example, during the Brexit process, anytime the judges did something the Brexiters didn't like, you know, they, they were sort of, they became ideologues, they must be Remainers, they must be lefties, but often they were doing things they thought was the letter of the law. So is it kind of a mistake to think of institutions as, um, as having a sort of political uh, valence? Well, the thing is that they do. It's just that that is the foundation of our entire society, right? Like, I mean, they do. And, you know, if if you have a totalitarian in a room and you have a Democrat, a liberal Democrat in a room, one of their disagreements will be, should power be separated? So it is obviously a political point. It's just, it is, it's a political opinion that power should be separated. It's just that we kind of assumed that in a free, that everyone agreed we wanted to live in a free society and that separating powers is absolutely crucial to creating the free society so now when you get these guys saying well they're all you know lefty liberals well it's like well they they they, they're not it's got nothing to do with right and left but yes they're liberal insofar as they are subscribing to the values that have been entrenched in this country and across the west for the last 400 years and that in itself should not be a bone of contention the fact that you think it is just shows how badly these guys are just drifting into authoritarianism that that should be in any way a controversial proposition now, uh, uh, finally, do you think that there is a, a demographic uh, dimension to the future of nationalism? If you look, obviously, at the, in Britain, if you look at the voting habits of young people and just the political opinions of young people versus old people, um, it seems like you're going to sort of age out of, of, of this particular moment. And yet, if you look at some other countries where, uh, you know, autocrats are doing well, they do have a fair amount of support among young people. No, but I mean, how, how much can you bank on today's sort of young cosmopolitan liberals or radicals uh, remaining uh, like that as they hit middle age? Yeah, and there's loads of, so in the literature, there's quite a lot about this. And it's actually like a major point of dispute um, between those who think that they will shift. In other words, you know, where they follow that old Churchill thing of, you know, you're starting left wing and you turn right wing as you get older. Or actually... Is it more like, um, like you know, what's your favorite album? For most people, it's gonna they're gonna pick an album, you know, from when they were sixteen, seventeen years old, because that's this, this formative period where many of your tastes are just based. And there's another school that says, well, actually, for a lot of these guys, that is this is that, you know, it's at this formative moment. It's a worldview that's formed, that's much more open, that's much more international, and like, no one knows. The answer to that question, most people I know in political science err towards the second of saying like it looks like this stuff is a proper worldview, properly cemented in how they are. At the moment, we don't know. And a lot will hinge on that. And of course, a lot will also hinge on the kind of problems, the kind of struggles that they face and the people that offer solutions to them. You know, when you get into a situation where you have very, very high youth unemployment, that might make people think in ways that they otherwise wouldn't Mm. think. So the answer, of course, as it is to all questions like this is fuck knows. I do not know. Thanks for nothing, Ian. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure your, your trial period is working out. <laughs> your 200 episode trial period. Um, Naomi, you've got the big one. Uh, climate change, the even greater crisis uh, waiting in the wings or currently going on in the background. Once uh, COVID-19 is settled, what are we going to have to focus on in particular? Um, Well, look, uh, we have to focus on the enormity because we don't have a choice Um, and we have to ensure that every political and economic decision gets made through 
the lens of climate catastrophe. I mean, for God's sake, I am sat here sweating my ass off recording this show in London after a week straight of plus 34 degrees Celsius uh, weather with no rain. Um, Our climate is breaking down. Our sea levels are rising because polar ice caps are melting. Fires are raging out of control, turning ancient forests into ash. The frequency and magnitude of storms is increasing, leaving more and more death and destruction behind it. Drought means water shortages are leaving crops and animals and people thirsty, and millions of species are at risk of extinction, and frankly, it includes us. Um, And then there's the whole issue of plastics. We've seen this massive spike globally as countries all over the world are reporting understandably big rises in plastic-based PPE takeaway boxes, online shopping packaging uh, because of of COVID. And our oceans are going to be suffering for centuries to come as a consequence. So what needs to happen? Well, over the past year, you know, the geopolitical fault lines have opened up to far more dangerous levels than we've recently experienced, making international cooperation very, very difficult in what is this key decade. Um, You'll remember that the UN's IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, warned that we have just 10 years left for global warming to be kept to a maximum of one and a half degrees Celsius, beyond which even half a degree will significantly worsen the risk of drought, floods, extreme heat, poverty, you know, for hundreds of millions of people. And, you know, if you're somebody who's worried about you know, a couple of thousand refugees coming across the channel this year, just you wait until many parts of the Southern Hemisphere become so uninhabitable that you are going to get the mass migration of thirsty, hungry, uh, poverty-stricken people trying to get to, 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 you know, to a climate that is still bearable for humans. So without any shadow of a doubt, dealing with climate change has to be the issue we prioritise, because unless we do nothing else matters, no- nothing that anyone else at the top of the show has talked about will matter. As as choices and freedoms will be, you know, curtailed ever more as as water, food, and energy have to be rationed, um, and, and you know, the hope is that the trillions being spent on COVID recovery at the moment are going to be spent on a green transition because that really is where the fight is now. And the EU's green recovery deal is a really, really good start. They've seen the economic pain caused by COVID as a use it or lose it moment. They're creating more than a million green jobs, you know, spending 91 billion a year for home energy efficiency programs, green heating, uh, 20 billion on clean cars, introducing, you know, million, two million, I think, more charging points for electric cars, spending up to 60 billion on zero emissions trains, etc. And the UK green recovery plan, I'm afraid to say, falls quite way short of this. Uh, the UK's green stimulus equates to about $100 per person. And by comparison, France's comes in at nearly 300 per person, Germany's at 389 and, and Denmark's at $776 per person. So the, the, the fight is there now. It's about all of the stuff we champion as internationalists about, you know, we are we are stronger together when we work across borders, when we work intergovernmentally through multilateral organizations. Um, and, and uh, you know, and, and we've got this once in a lifetime opportunity with, uh, you know, the situation coming out of COVID to radically transform uh, how we how we use the Earth's resources. Well, we've seen governments, including uh, conservative, kind of generally small state governments, behave in very radical interventionist ways to prop up the economy to some extent uh, during the pandemic. I mean, does this make it harder in the same way that it means that you can't use the magic money tree line anymore? um, Does it make it harder to sort of excuse the lack of massive, you know, radical effort to, to confront climate change it's just like well you know if here's a crisis here's how we're responding obviously some countries better than others but does it therefore say well look this is what can be done in an emergency and the climate crisis is an emergency Absolutely. Um, And I suppose, you know, the big kind of fly in the ointment we've got at the moment is Trump um, and whether or not he's going to win the election later this year. Um, If you remember, just (laughs) Um, you know, the timing of his election was just days after the Paris Climate Agreement entered into force. Um, And that, you know, the fact that that came in just as he got elected is is both tragic and absurd because, you know, he campaigned on a promise to cancel that accord. Um, And it's led to lots of people asking, you know, can we still stop climate change 
uh, without the US being involved and, and getting on board. And, you know, I'm no expert, but the consensus seems to be that if every country was to walk back from the Paris Accord, then we're absolutely fucked. Um, modelers have suggested that the probability of us staying below that, you know, two degree threshold would drop from about two thirds to 10%. Well, the next climate change summit, therefore, will be taking place, I believe, oh, post Trump. Exactly. Exactly. But. China's Xi Jinping pledged at Davos this year to stay signed up to the Paris Accord and encouraged others to do so. And of course, the US is quite federal. um, And some states are very committed to climate change reduction, as are a great many businesses and individuals. Um, So, you know, I just don't think we can ever think that our actions alone can't change things because, you know, a a dick like Trump is, is, is trying to get the US corporately not to sign up to it. You know, we all will need to to make changes in our own lives to, to achieve this. So, Dorian, we, you know, we've mentioned, you know, Trump a few times during the show already. And uh, you wanted to discuss the election of Joe Biden and what that could mean for Britain and British politics. Well, there's a good article in the New York Times the other week that said few countries have worked harder than Britain to please President Trump. Uh, giant waste of time. Um, and so while other countries will be kind of delighted to see the back of the toddler in chief, Britain might be more ambivalent. Trump was sympathetic to the idea of Brexit, if not actually all the practical uh, details in Britain's actual trade demands. While Biden has opposed Brexit, plus it's pointed out because of his Irish Catholic roots, um, that he may be inclined to be a little tougher when the UK's interests conflict with, with Ireland. And the New York Times also pointed out the British government has no personal connections with Biden because, actually, I mean, for, for long-term reasons, but also they can't embed anybody, which is what the British government would normally do. They have somebody in the campaign and there's really no account. What are they going to do? Hang around outside his house. Um, but Tim Shipman, Sunday Times, has quoted government advisor saying a Biden presidency would make things much easier. And I do think that's true. I don't think Biden is a grudge-holding kind of guy. I think he will understand why Britain had to kind of... Uh, you know, try and keep on Trump's good side, if such a thing exists. And Johnson is enough of an opportunity to suck up like Billio. So I'm optimistic that it will be better. We might be able to get a slightly better deal, um, but just a better relationship anyway. And it's also said that the, that the basis for the special relationship, such as it is, under Biden would be a united effort on things like human rights and Russia. So there's actually going to be a, a real incentive to do the right thing there. You know, imagine if. Uh, if what helped you on trade also helped you uh, sleep at night and maybe um, save people's lives. Um, and I just think it's been, I mean, it's, obviously it's been such a shameful period for, for America, the Trump years, but it's also been pretty shameful for Britain. Nobody was proud, uh, except Nigel Farage, when, you know, when Trump visited, nobody's sort of proud of the kind of, you know, refusal to sort of criticize, uh, criticize him. Uh, Trump, as we've seen, not only doesn't care about British interests, he doesn't care about Americans dying. Um, so, uh, as the song says, things can only get better. And, and what about Kamala Harris? I mean, it's not we now know it's not just Biden, and he has chosen his running mate. Do you think that makes a, an, another difference to us here on the you know moderate left of British politics? So you're talking specifically about the moderate left. I mean, I think the, a, a reversal of populism in America and a victory for sort of Biden and Kamala Harris, who is a uh, you know, is a, is a much younger uh, figure and is sort of, Biden is very much a product of the American, the old American political establishment. Whereas Harris, I think, seems sort of, I find somehow more sort of relatable, if, you know, to the sort of British, British centre-left, um, the way that she positions herself, the way that she talks. Um, and I mean, it can only be a good thing because they, they do they do obviously have an effect. You know, what happens in one country affects what happens in another. Brexit, you know, has certainly helped inspire, you know, Trump. Uh, and it did seem like, you know, you get two of those things together and it feels like there's been a real kind of, you know, global reversal. And so just to have, uh, you know, Democrat in the White House again, it seems to me surely would put a little bit of lead in the pencil of Labour, even though obviously one thing doesn't follow from another, but it, it, it certainly can't hurt to have somebody sympathetic to Labour in, in Australia. So do you, do you think that, you know, by basically tying themselves with each other, you know, uh, Brexit and the right generally in Europe and Orban and Erdogan, 
by, by all those people linking themselves so closely, there's a danger for the right that if Trump goes, it will be like a set of dominoes. Well, I see it sort of, I mean, it depends where you are, because if you're, say, in Poland or whatever, that, that kind of movement seems very, very strong. But if you look at, like, Brazil and how badly Bolsonaro has botched COVID, if you look at America, you know, it, it does seem like a moment of real weakness. And, you know, it, it's, it's certainly, I mean, it's not going to sort of reverse Brexit, but it is going to take away some of that sort of swagger. Do you remember when Steve Bannon, you know, left the White House and he was on his world tour sort of, None of this came to anything, but sort of promising that he was going to kind of put, you know, populist right governments in office across the world. Um, and that didn't really happen. But, you know, there was a real sense of there is a movement. This is the next wave. And I remember it was only where, you know, it was only when Macron beat Le Pen that you really thought, oh, actually, no, it's not this unstoppable wave. Uh, and I think that, you know, because America is so influential, I think a defeat for Trump would have very positive ramifications elsewhere, even if it's not just going to be able to sort of roll back, um, you know, what's happened in the last four years. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. It is a season of utter insanity and lunacy in the United States. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. We have to create a kinder, gentler world where everyone has the basic decencies of life. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Finally this week, we take a look back at our dewy-eyed former selves with their fuller hopes and shorter haircuts as we pick out some of our favourite moments from the last 200 counting episodes of Romaniacs. Um, I'll go first. This clip comes from our emergency podcast recorded outside the British Library on the 9th of July 2018, the day David Davis and Boris Johnson resigned from the Cabinet over Theresa May's Brexit plans, and inconveniently for me and Ian, they didn't do it at the same time. Ian and I made special arrangements to uh, to meet here and record a special podcast edition about the resignation of David Davis, which we just did. It was excellent. However, you will never hear it. <laughs> Because, because Boris Johnson, who I explicitly said in the podcast you will never hear, should not resign until Wednesday morning, just before we record, has just resigned. Let's take a moment to talk about Dan Sturgis, who's the British citizen who died last night um, from Novichok poisoning from the nerve agent that Russia used in Salisbury. The Foreign Secretary has been hidden in a fucking room today consulting with head advisors, not on his principles to do with Brexit, which would be obscene enough as it is, given the severity of what took place overnight, but on basically how his career pans out. Okay, now that is a low point for what is supposed to be a great office of state, for what is still a great country. He's been an abomination in the world and a useful sign of just how profoundly degraded the, the standards of British politics have become, that he could even find himself in it, let alone be allowed to continue in it without being sacked and going of his own accord. And I suppose it was the first time that I actually thought, oh, we're not just this kind of like chilled out weekly salon. <laughs> but this kind of like, we're quite, we're quite newsy and we can actually react to things quite fast. And those have been a lot of the most exciting uh, episodes. Naomi, what's your favourite? Um, for me, the most cathartic moment doing the podcast was the day after the general election last year. Um, I first actually met Ian and Dorian and Andrew the day after the 2017 general election, which was my first ever show. Um, And then here we were two and a half years later doing another post-mortem. And Ian and I met outside Podmasters Towers and I just burst into tears uh, on the street in front of him. And he sort of expertly whisked me uh, into a neighbouring pret, got a coconut flat white down my neck and stiffened my resolve. And listen, might remember that I managed to turn that grief into anger quite quickly and on the show we recorded minutes later I vented my anger towards the Liberal Democrats and Labour Um, and it was the outpouring um, of support from our listeners after that which made a horrible situation so much 
better, you know, the messages, both public and private, really blew me away. And I think I'd always known that we'd built this incredible Romaniacs community, but until then it had never been quite so apparent. This show is going to continue, the fight will continue, the movement will continue, and we've built something incredible, not just through Romaniacs, but the entire Remain movement is in such a better place than it was when we were fighting the referendum. We've now got the majority of the creative industries on our side, we've got the tech industries on our side, we've got young people on our side. We will prevail, Um, it's a setback, but... We should and can never take this stuff for granted. Um, You know, all of our our hard-won rights and we're not going to give up now and no one's going anywhere and we're not going to do what the Leavers did in 75 and just sort of hang around moaning at the sidelines for 25 years until things came back our way. We're we're going to carry on. That's it, we're actually ahead of schedule. We're way ahead of schedule. We've got a mass movement. They never even bothered creating a mass movement (laughs) for about 20 20 years, did they? So, yeah, that's good. Ian, you've chosen the live show recording we did only a few days after that episode at Leicester Square Theatre. Why, why that live show? Yeah, I, that was a weird, I mean, that was a strange night. And I remember, like, I think we were all sort of looking at it with a sense of slight trepidation. And I spoke to, you know, some people I knew in the audience. And one of them, you know, was, was just like, you know, honestly, I just didn't know if I even wanted to, to come to this right now. And it was all, we were all just a bit shell-shocked and a bit damaged, really. Um and then you just get to one of the live events. And the, the things about podcasts, right, is that, you know, it is about having a sense of community. Yeah. But there isn't, um, you know, and what we do is we just talk, we sit in a room, or usually a room, but now we sit in our own homes and we just talk. And you don't have that exchange. The live shows gave you um, that thing of seeing and being with people and usually them d- saying something funny and just having that sense of togetherness um, and that feeling of, well, you're not alone with this. You know, you're not going nuts. Like... You, 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 I mean, that makes it sound great, you know, going, well, you're saying and everyone else has gone nuts. Doesn't sound fantastic, but, you know, basically making each other feel that we're not going crazy. And that kind of came into its own on that, on that night. And I mean, it was, it was with us a lot as well. Like I remember, you know, for a bunch of us, I hadn't seen you at that point. I remember just sort of like we clocked eyes on each other for the first time. We were just like, how you doing, man? <laughs> you know, weird. and then getting into the room, like it just felt like it went from this sense of defeat to everyone just having a tremendous sense of togetherness in that room on that night. It felt like a, like a tremendously like wholesome and emotionally important sort of moment and like a sense of relief given the despair that was going on. The 2020s then, what sort of major demographic or political event perhaps saying keep an eye out for? Well, I don't really know how to answer that question, so I'm going uh, to answer a different one. Um, <laughs> I, the, the thing is that we're trapped in an identity war, right? And that's obviously what we're going to see over the next decade. We have to be able to participate in that conversation without accepting the terms of that conversation. And that's a distinction between the kind of identity that someone freely chooses that is a love story, whether that's patriotism or something to do with your race or your sexuality or your gender on one side, and the one that is imposed on you by people that are quite authoritarian on either side of that are going, if you are gay, you are X. If you are British, you must be the following things, typically right wing and an imbecile. We have to fight that, the straight jacket of identity. And we fight it by having our own story about identity, which is freedom enhancing, which is the love story that you find by the parts of yourself that you choose to reflect and the meaning that you find in it. And if we can find that conversation, if we can have it, if we can feel it, we've got a fighting chance. And if we don't, we're in a lot of fucking trouble. I was really proud of that night because we saw, I've seen this, it's sort of, you know, and you hear about it in comedy shows or uh, gigs where you talk about the energy in the room and you start off and it could really go either way and it's quite low and you can feel it kind of, the energy sort of gathering throughout and by the end you feel like, you've actually done something you've actually really achieved something as opposed to just sort of turned up and done the job you felt like you on stage and everyone in the audience collectively had sort of lifted ourselves up when it wasn't Mm -hmm. at all the easy or obvious thing to do well then nobody knows of course that your secret trick for that is just to guzzle whiskey backstage before you go on but yeah but that's just (laughs) that's all you need man it's not it's not hard so (laughs) <laughs> Alex, what's your favourite bit? Well, I feel rather silly because I've gone for a funny bit. Um, <laughs> so it was, uh, I think it was the first week of the election campaign last autumn. Um, and 
I was trying to describe the, the I was trying to say that the UK is not even a minnow swimming with sharks, but it's actually a tasty tuna. The idea that um, the Tories would sort of sell off the NHS is very potent. Mm. Labour's sort of pushing that. What's the reality there? What is actually meant by that? I mean, not literally going mm-hmm. to sell off the NHS to Donald Trump. I think there's a lot of substance because we are a minnow. So if you're trying to negotiate a trade deal with the largest economy in the world, you've got to have something to negotiate with. And that is the prized asset that, you know, that, that we just don't have a huge amount else. I will disagree on a slight point. We're not a minnow. We're a tuna. We're a tasty tuna. If we were a minnow, we'd, we would be off the radar. Mm-hmm. of what US companies enough. were. But we are actually big enough to make a tasty meal, not small enough to ignore, but not big enough to fight in a shark full of tanks. That's the point. A shark full of tanks? Yeah. That's tank, amazing. Tank, tank full of sharks. Tank, uh, yeah. but also, I do like, I do like <laughs> a shark full of tanks. A shark full of tanks. Which sounds like a kind of small boy inventing a super weapon. <laughs> it sounds like the, sh- the new Sharknado. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> opens its mouth and tanks fly out. <laughs> <laughs> and that sort of became a running joke and it became the title of the episode. And if you Google shark full of tanks, that's all you get. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of love that. It was a close run thing with Ian's Doritos lasagna, I have to say, <laughs> because those two things share a quality. And it is the fact that throughout these 200 episodes, we have actually become really well tuned to each other and really good friends and we're like family now so so well but it's true because that but that means there are running gags and you know and uh, all our listeners know what we're talking about so we've formed this kind of shorthand of talking about things, which is, I think, rather wonderful. Well, I, I think in, um, in, uh, in the Live in Manchester show, when I accidentally said Frank Mansoir, on any other politics podcast, <laughs> I would have had to apologise. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm Mark Francois. And it would never be mentioned again. And I like to it it was like, well, I guess that's his name now. <laughs> so, I mean, so, but that's, that's the thing. This idea of, of continuity and camaraderie, is, I think, what is really wonderful about this podcast. So, like I said, close run thing with Doritos Lasagna. They're both very memorable and are running gags, but uh, unlike Doritos Lasagna, uh, uh, Shark Full of Tanks is an awesome idea. I thought you were going to say, unlike Doritos Lasagna, Shark Full of Tanks is edible. (laughs) Finally, Rose, your favourite bit uh, is, is, is a very special moment. Yes, I was actually going to go for British Fish, or uh, more accurately, fucking British Fish. <laughs> but um, we've already had sharks, and um, in any case, the original uh, time, the, the first appearance of fucking British Fish on the podcast is now woefully outdated because it looks as though British, uh, British Fish will actually exist uh, if we get any kind of agreement. So, as a result, you know, it would be it would be misleading. So, my my favourite bit really involves um involves Alex, and um, it, he's reading out the winner of the Donald Tusk fan fiction. Oh my oh god! From May twenty nineteen, because you know, obviously, Donald and I have um, Donald Tusk that is have um, you know, in my mind, always had a special relationship, <laughs> and um, it, it it's uh, it was a fantastic, <laughs> fantastic idea of the competition, which certainly produced some remarkable entries, and really, <laughs> really produced an unforgettable moment. Julia Hartley Brewer crept down the hallway towards Donald Tusk's office. His office door was ajar, and she got a glimpse of him. He had aged well, like the fine English sparkling wine she had sipped at the St. Pancras Weatherspoons earlier. Miss Hartley Brewer, he smiled, what brings you here? I heard about your solidarity, she stammered. Isn't that communist talk? I do hope you won't try to seize control of my means of production. Not in the least, he smiled. I believe in universal rights and freedoms. That's a shame, she whispered. I'd heard something about from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. You have needs, he replied coyly. Maybe they can be met with a long extension. 
Have you ever thought about an ever closer union? <laughs> Is it over? It's over. <laughs> I'm so glad that we recorded that before, you know, deep fake porn was accessible to viewers <laughs> for their own fans because the erotica was bad enough, but can you imagine? Do you remember that I had to read that in front of really quite a serious um, journalist? <laughs> and it, it, I think it... I think Rachel Sharby was our guest that day, and I felt so incredibly self-conscious. I'm sorry, Rachel. Yeah, she was. She was thinking. Bless her. You could see she. I thought this was a serious political podcast. (laughs) Get me my agent. So that reading brings us to the climax of our 200th show. Back in 2017, we didn't have the Brexit time capsule or the bridge. We asked our guests, before Ed Miliband stole this phrase, what their reasons to be cheerful were. So I'm going to ask uh, each of my beloved co-hosts how they are staring cheerful. Ian. Yeah, I mean, well, this is sort of fitting, isn't it? But it... uh, it's, it is the song by our patron saint. So it's um, England is a Garden, sorry, the album by Corner Shop, which is like, it, it is a very good summer album. It was good in the spring because it made you feel like summer was coming. And now that summer's here, it is a tremendously good like album to listen to. It's really fun. It's got like, actually has something to say about the world. And it sort of connects you to the music that I was listening to anyway when I was like a teenager. It's absolutely fucking delightful. And if, you know, you're listening to this podcast and you somehow have escaped the fact that we mention it every fucking week, then now might actually be a good chance to check it out. Uh, Roz? Um, Yeah, well, the other uh, day I confessed that I'd actually finished the German Duolingo course um, after about literally two and a half years. Amazing. um, Fairly hard work. I know, I know. I was really proud of myself. But the problem is, where do you go really? then? And um, my husband, <laughs> yeah, well, I would do. But, you know, frankly, uh, not not really an option anymore. And um, so uh, my uh, husband, rightly, who's, who's half German, suggested, well, why don't you start watching German stuff on Netflix? And I was like, well, there's only going to be German crap on Netflix. It's going to be like, you know, whatever, German German <laughs> version of Baker. <laughs> David Hasselhoff bad. tribute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's seriously, they make they make kind of uh, busts of, of of famous German people at cake and stuff. It's 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 terrible. But uh, yeah, so uh, so now I've got to get into German Netflix. So I'm starting on The Dark, which is meant really to be good. So that's my next target. Yeah, so I hear. Well, I mean the the idea of a, of a German Bake Off is cheering me a lot right now. Um, the idea that I may not be melting uh, in two days' time because the weather is going to get a little bit cooler is cheering me. And uh, doing this podcast with all of you cheers me on a weekly basis. And Naomi? Yeah, pretty similar. Um, I I just trying to consume as many podcasts that lift me up as possible. Uh, Comedy ones like Two Vegan Idiots. We had Carl Donnelly uh, on a on a Bunker Daily recently. That's an amazing one to always just make me laugh, no matter how glum I'm feeling. And spending as much time with people who nourish my soul, like my my lovely, amazing colleagues, both on the podcast and Best of Britain, and of course my family. So nothing nothing overly complicated. Just those things that cheer me. What about you? Um, I sometimes this sounds weird as somebody who started as a music journalist, but I sometimes forget to listen to music, like because <laughs> there's things you've got to listen to for research, and you've got to keep up on. And you're reading like some reading newspapers and magazines and lots and lots of books about autocracy and all of that, and um, and sometimes I think yeah, I'm very interested in politics and all that. <laughs> Thankfully, um, but but sometimes I just sort of forget how like just sort of amazing, just like a new album, like a great new album is, and then you can just sort of immerse yourself. So say this year, like the the Phoebe Bridges album Punisher, um, and it just sort of loosens you up, and 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 instead of just walking around with a head full of podcasts all the time, and you know trying to really you know, process a lot of information, sometimes just that pure joy, which has been a constant in my life you know, of like a great new album is something that I just sort of have to remind myself uh, to do and how much better it is than politics always. (laughs) Not better than you guys, better than politics. 
So, talking music, it's time for our theme song since episode 19, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop. You can find their music, including England as a Garden, as promoted by Ian, at ampleplay.co.uk. Thanks to the people that keep the uh, engine of Romaniacs running, Andrew Harrison, Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold, and Martin Boater. Here, here. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Cheers, guys. Thank you. And finally, a thank you to our latest Patreon backers, without whom, etc., etc. Thanks from me to Chris Hancock, Stu Holiday, and David Lidicote. Hello, and thank you to Paul Whelan, Aaron Maytum, and Sam Ryder. And muchas gracias from me to Richard Belly, Philip Abrahams, and Gordon Summers. Dankeschön from me to Dorothy Jenkinson, Ben Davis, and Christine Toe. And finally, thanks from me to Toby Barrett, Tamsin Burstein, and James Oliver. Thanks so much for joining us for the 200th. Take care, and we'll see you next week. Romaniacs was presented by Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor, Alex Andreu, Ian Dunt, and Naomi Smith. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Thank you.